Welcome to the Dark Eye Podcast. My name is Mari Tess Zerbano, and today's guest is Daniel Malmer. Daniel is a Silicon Valley veteran software developer, and I met Daniel, oh my gosh, 20 years ago? About 20 years ago. Oh my good God. 20 years ago. We think it's Match.com. Anyway. <laughs> and then what? Maybe a, a decade and a half later, Dan, you found me on Facebook? Is that how it's found you on Facebook, yeah. Isn't that crazy? So Dan yeah. was like the classic, like, is most of the Match.com dates I go on. Like the one date, and you know. <laughs> nice to meet you. I didn't know, Dan, that you were a magician at the time, or did I know I that? I not a magician at the time, as a matter of fact. In fact, I, uh, I have kind of a, a love-hate relationship with magic because I, uh, I, I, I don't like secrets. I don't like, uh, <laughs> I don't like deception. I don't like being fooled. And all of these are, are pretty important elements of, uh, of magic. And so I resisted for a long, long time. Um, but it's only probably in the past four or five years that I've kind of um, picked it up. Oh, that's so, great. Um, but, but what appeals to me about it, though, is uh, you know I'm really fascinated about fascinated by cognitive processes, cognitive biases, and whatnot, and um, uh, how how people pay attention, for example, and how they overestimate how much they can actually be aware of. And that's part of what kind of drew me back into magic was um, were those types of things, decision-making, cognitive bias, um, cognitive processes, things like that. It's a very rich and fertile area for that type of thing. Okay, enough of the sexy talk there, Daniel. Yeah. Let's talk about you, white guy. You, the reason why we're gonna have you as a guest today is because unlike many of my friends, both people of color and white, to be perfectly honest, you are a, uh, a social activist. And I, I have to tell you that even my own relatives, my own neighbors, people of color, are not as aware and active as you are. So can you, before we start our, our talk about uh, social justice, activism, and technology, can you tell us how you became so uh, and empathetic. Yeah, so that's a that's a long story. Um, a lot of that come. I think it comes from there's circumstances and there's um, like family influences. And um, my mother is very high on empathy, and that's always been something that's been very prominent in terms of her personality. So she set a really good example for me. Um, my father was more analytical, I would say. And then my grandfather was someone who demonstrated what I would consider a lot of uh, moral courage. And moral courage is uh, this idea that you uh, try to do the right thing. But until President Obama was elected, I kind of was blind to a lot of the uh, racial resentment that uh, exists in the country. And when there are people who are actively working to silence uh, minority voices, I, I pretty strongly feel that there have to be people who work to counter that. So th those are that's kind of the, the backdrop for how I kind of started to get involved. And so how does one start getting involved in Silicon Valley and in, in being socially active? How did you, you just, I guess, of course, you just Googled it, right? Sure. You just, yeah, you always start with Google, um, ironically. And uh, for me, the, the very first, uh, this was probably about four years ago when I actually started getting, when I started volunteering and, and actually doing work, um, I was looking for opportunities to um, volunteer my time and help. I was at a stage in my career where uh, I wanted to help uh, give back to people who were earlier in their career and, and start mentoring and, and helping people who were, who were younger. And the first organization that I started working with is an organization called Hackbright Academy, which is a coding boot camp for women. And uh, this was also at a time when I was working at a company 
that had more female software developers than I had worked with um, combined prior to that. Um, meaning that uh, in the 20 years prior to working at this company, I had worked with maybe a total of half a dozen women software developers. And then at this company that I was working at, the organization had six women software developers. And so, you know, it was 20 years worth of, from my perspective, 20 years worth of women software developers um, all at once. So um, in, in volunteering with Hackbot Academy and mentoring some of the students that were going through that program, I started learning uh, a lot more about uh, what the issues were. And uh, for instance, it's, it's very common, you, you kind of, if, if, if you're unaware, if you just enter the, the technology industry and you look around and you say, well, why aren't there any women? Why aren't there any people of color? Um, it might occur to you. One, one of the very common beliefs is, well, maybe, uh, maybe they aren't good at it, or maybe they don't want to do this. Uh, that's a very common belief held by smart, well-meaning people. Uh, it's it's certainly true that there are some people, men and women, white and black, who don't want to be in the tech industry. Uh, but that's not the primary reason that. Uh, the tech industry is so dominated by people who happen to look like me. Um, a, a lot more of it has to do with uh, people feeling, people actively being excluded and the tech industry being kind of uh, set up for the comfort of uh, people who happen to look like me. Well, let me stop you there. So that's a very powerful statement. What do you mean they're actively excluded? So um, one way is selection. So there's a selection bias, and uh, the first the first tech company that I worked in worked at in Silicon Valley was uh, was Netscape Communications Corporation, um, one of the first browser companies. And um, my manager was uh, he was a good guy, but he was uh, he did his uh, he was a Stanford grad, and his hiring strategy was to hire other Stanford grads. And so I was a Stanford grad, and uh, several other people in my group um, were Stanford grads. And then Netscape, uh, our product management organization, was primarily, I want to say almost exclusively, uh, Stanford MBAs. And the, uh, you know, when, when people are doing that, they're not saying to themselves, well, I want to hire a bunch of white guys, and so I'm going to go to Stanford because that's what I want to do. What they're thinking is I want to hire a, uh, you know, they have a good brand and I have an affinity for that organization because I went there too. And so you have a belief, obviously you have a belief it's a good organization, a good school because you went there. And, but what you wind up with is you wind up with an organization that, uh, that isn't diverse in the first place. And so what that means is, is the teams that you build that way, um, are not going to be diverse. So, um, but in terms of being excluded, uh, there are all kinds of stories about this and it, and it works in a lot of different ways. Um, people will, uh, people like to, uh, be in environments where they feel that they belong. And if you are the only, uh, black person in an organization, uh, it's going to be very difficult for you, or if you're the only white person or the only man, it's going to be uh, difficult to feel um, that you belong. Now, that being said, I have an advantage um, in that, uh, you know, white, straight, male um, is kind of the default, and uh, this country is uh, kind of set up uh, for my benefit. So it's going to feel easier for me to uh, go into a place where I'm underrepresented and still feel that I belong. Right. Good point. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, so it's that, that's one of the, uh, and that's actually one of the challenges with, uh, with the diversity and inclusion, uh, efforts in, in tech is that very often when a person of color or a woman is going into a, a technology organization, it's, it's pretty common for them to be the first to be the pioneer uh, in that organization. And as a result, uh, you know, there's a saying that the, uh, well, it's, they're going to suffer 
a lot of the gaffes related to diversity and inclusion are wow. going to wind up happening right to the to the pioneers. And you see this in magic as well. Magic's also very dominated by white males, right? And so well, you're very familiar with this. Let's talk about uh, Facebook. What happened today? Yeah. Uh, the yeah, Facebook this is numbers. Yeah, great timing. Right. Yeah, so, so tell so us about that. Yeah. So about three or four years ago, someone um, who's pretty prominent in the diversity and inclusion world named Erica Joy Baker. Uh, she she's a former Google employee, um, also a former. She's a Hackbright alum. And uh, she pushed for companies to start publishing uh, diversity numbers, um, along with uh, a woman named Tracy Chow, who used to work at Pinterest. And uh, she was another person who was involved in, in helping make this happen. And so it's now become fairly common for big companies like Twitter, Facebook, Google to publish a report on what their company looks like in terms of uh, race and gender. So today... Uh, the Facebook numbers were just released. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Yeah, this is great timing because just a couple of hours ago, um, Facebook released their most recent report on their uh, internal diversity numbers. And uh, this has been something that's been happening for the past three years or so. Um, a woman named Erica Joy Baker, uh, who was at Google at the time, um, started uh pressuring companies to be more transparent about who was working um, at the companies, how the companies were made up. And I, uh, I just skimmed the numbers, but I, I knew what I was going to see um, before I actually looked at them, which is that they were going to be pretty much the same as they were last year and the year before that. And uh, this has been happening at Twitter. Uh, Do you have the numbers in front of you, Dan? Uh, no, but I can rattle them off off the top of my head. You typically see two different numbers. You see numbers for the company as a whole, mm -hmm. and then you see numbers for the technology organization. And what you're typically going to see is something like in a typical technology company, a large company like Twitter, Google, Facebook, is the company is two-thirds male and one-third female. And then when you actually look in the at, at the uh, the technical organization, it's going to be 85% male and 15% female. And then uh, in terms of race, you're going to see something like, you know, uh, company-wide, 3%, 2 or 3% African-American, 2 or 3% Latino. But in the technical organization, you're going to see usually 1% African-American and uh, maybe 2% Latino. And I think those are exactly the numbers that we saw from Facebook today. And, and this is despite three years now of, uh, of effort uh, on their part. So they're not making, it's kind of, uh, it, it's routine now. Every year uh, these reports come out and the headlines are no progress in Google's diversity numbers, no progress in Twitter's diversity numbers, uh, no progress in Facebook's diversity numbers. And um, the shocking thing about it is, again, uh, to, to someone who's unaware, and this is how I certainly was, like, say, five years ago, uh, you – oh, and uh, Facebook's diversity report today kind of pointed the finger at what's called the pipeline problem. Mm -hmm. uh, they said, you know, colleges are not graduating enough people of color, not graduating, not graduating enough, uh, quote, unquote, qualified candidates. Um, that's that's kind of the, the parting line on this. And – uh, I certainly used to believe that, but it turns out that in the United States, about 12% of engineering degrees are awarded to people of to African Americans and Latinos and Latinas, um, about 12%. And in spite of that, it's pretty consistent to see 1% of these tech technology organizations made up of African Americans and maybe 2%. So they're they're underrepresented. It's only about a quarter of what you would expect based on the number of available engineering uh, graduates out there. And it's even worse than that because it turns out that I've, I've known dozens of software developers who either didn't have an engineering degree, they maybe had a degree in psychology or English or right. music, or didn't have a degree at all. And in fact, I've worked with people who didn't finish finish high school and develop software. Now, it turns out that they're in fairly white male, but the, 
you know, the, the bottom line is, is that the, the standard for women and people of color is consistently, uh, the bar is set higher for them. And if you're, this is part of white privilege. If you're a white male, if you look the part, uh, you are, uh, entitled to the benefit of the doubt in terms of, uh, you know, being able to develop code. And you see this, I mean, there are very famous examples of this. Um, Bill Gates is a historic uh, example of someone who dropped out of college and is seen as a computer genius. And Mark Zuckerberg um, dropped out of college and is seen as, uh, you know, a, a computer software genius. So they get a pass and uh, people who don't look the part, uh, they don't. And, and so that's another part of the problem. So what is this, uh, so jumping over here, so what is this uh, long fabled history of uh, Silicon Valley being a meritocracy? Yeah, yeah so that's, that's the thing. I mean, the, uh, for, for decades, um, the kind of the, the narrative around Silicon Valley has always been, uh, there's been kind of this conflict between old school East Coast way of doing things and the you know, liberated, enlightened Silicon Valley progressive way of doing things. And, and part of that narrative is that you'll hear people in Silicon Valley say things like, well, you know, certainly if there were qualified people of color or qualified women to hire, we certainly would hire them because Silicon Valley is a meritocracy. But in order to believe in other words, the, the, the implication there is that there is no old boys network in Silicon Valley and that the best ideas are the ones that uh, win out. Um, maybe it's better than the East Coast, but it's certainly not the case that uh, the, the best ideas win out or the most talented people win out. Uh, it's certainly, it's, it's absolutely the case that um, who you know is very important here. And if you fit a certain uh, mold, and uh, this this plays into uh, who gets hired, who is invested in, who gets listened listened to. Um, there's a very big premium in Silicon Valley placed on uh, how much money you've made. So if you've uh, if you had a terrible idea but turned it into a billion dollar company somehow through uh, there's a lot of luck involved in these things. Um, that person. Typically, there's a halo effect around that, and that person will typically get a lot more weight given to their opinion than someone who had a brilliant idea that didn't work out because the stock market crashed or something like that, or uh, some kind of you know black swan disaster they couldn't have uh, predicted. One of the reasons why I brought you on the podcast is because these are all topics that I had no idea were important to me. And when you brought them up, I, I thought, damn, this is very important to me. I can't yeah. believe this is happening right under my nose. So can you tell me more about uh, Google image search disasters? Yeah. So th this is, yeah, you're right. We, we are, you know, technology has become a part of all of our lives. And all of us are really, well, I mean, I shouldn't say all of us. I certainly have been blind to, uh, to, to how things are. And uh, there, there are, you constantly see these Google image search problems where one of the first ones I was ever aware of was that if you did a search for black girls, um, and you can imagine like a 13-year-old black girl doing a search for black girls, and uh, there was a time not too long ago when, when you did that search, you wound up getting pictures of uh, scantily clad women, um, strippers, uh, things like this. Really, uh, it was pretty, it was demeaning. You were going to try to Google black girls and see yeah, what Yeah, so I, I Googled black girls and they came up with what looks like fairly reasonable results. I mean, there certainly are some women in bikinis taking selfies and things like that, but mm -hmm. it's... It's, it's better than it used to be. So what else, like image search disasters, what else? Um, another one that was, that was not, I think it was a, less than a year ago, was the difference in terms of search results when you searched for white teens versus black teens. I think it was, I think the search was three black teens and three white teens. And if you did that search, the three white teens would come back as these smiley stock image photos, um, you know, real happy looking, 
nice looking kids. And when you did a search for three black teens, it would come back with uh, mug shots or people engaging in criminal behavior or something like that. Uh, wow. Pretty awful stuff. And one of the reasons that things like this happens, this is actually a direct result of a lack of diversity within technology organizations. This is the type of thing that happens because mm-hmm. the it, it doesn't occur to someone who looks like me to go and do a search for black girls or three black teens or upload a – another thing that's happened with Google image search is people um, will upload photos. And another one that happened recently was it misidentified pictures of African-Americans. This is this is AI that's happening behind the scenes and they're trying to – Okay. I, I'm, I'm a, I don't know what AI is. Uh, artificial intelligence. Okay. These are things that are basically trying to identify what's in the picture. Mm-hmm. And people would upload pictures of, of, of black people. And it would identify the person in the picture as a gorilla. What? Yeah. So this is this AI. Is, yeah. And so this is awful. And what the one of the reasons that happens—that's the type of thing that ought to be caught before you release it. Jesus. And it would be caught if they had more people of color working in their organization, because you know when you have an image recognition um, program. It's natural to try to run it on yourself to see what happens. Right. And that and that wasn't happening. So these are the types of things um, <coughs> that that, um, that are happening in these organizations, um, in in part because of uh, a lack of representation in these organizations, hmm. um, and a lack of awareness of uh, uh, you know on the part of the of these um, these organizations. So you, a, you've been part of um, a lot of ally panels. Um, yeah, and so tell me more about that. They, it, it, some, yeah. it's something about they um, they tend to be important people who aren't. Yes. Like, yeah, I have a kind of a so I you know this is this is just based on my experience. So this doesn't this certainly doesn't describe every ally panel out there. But one of the so um, the 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 uh, the community that I'm a part of is called the Diversity and Inclusion Community. And there's a reason I'll t- we'll talk about inclusion um, shortly, but uh, these are organizations who are interested in making sure that they're that people are represented. Uh, and also a lot of it has to do with educating people who look like me um, about these issues because most people who look like me are clueless. They're as clueless as I was five years ago. And um, it's really common to have an ally panel. Um, at, at these, uh, at these events. So there'll be some kind of conference. One of the panels invariably will be an ally panel. And, um, in my experience, uh, again, this goes along with who is influential in Silicon Valley. Is it people who are actually doing the best work or is it people who have been successful in some financial sense? So my experience has been that these ally panels – in fact, I don't, I, I, I don't call myself an ally um, in part because of this because I think that the word has become – it's kind of lost meaning hmm. and uh, in a lot of cases. And um, so what you'll see often – well, I'll give you – give you here's a canonical example that was very famous. Uh, two years ago at the Grace Hopper Conference, which is a – that's a conference that um, is focused on women in technology – the CEO of Microsoft, Satya Nadella, was on an ally panel, and he famously put his foot in his mouth when he gave the women at the conference the advice that they should trust the system. Oh, I remember that. Right. Yeah, and it created a huge um, furor. And I, I think, and I don't, I don't want to rake Satya over the coals, but it was, it was particularly embarrassing because he's he's running this multi-billion-dollar company. Right. Um, this was a huge – certainly his company had the resources to kind of brief him and prepare him for this. But it kind of shows – it kind of shows how behind the curve um, even very smart people are um, on topics like this. And he's – that wasn't the exception. That's, that's actually fairly common is um, – I, I attended a, a panel once where the moderator asked the people on the stage six different times – um, she said, tell me about a time when you personally have done something to advocate for women and people of color in tech. And she asked that six times before someone finally had an answer. And it was something like, well, 
10 years, 10 years ago, I did something and made my group do something. And I was, I almost fell out of my chair, um, in the audience. Cause I'm like, if, you know, if these guys are, if, if this is what an ally in Silicon Valley is right now, wow. I don't, I don't want to be this. And, um, wow. so, you know, there, I, I think this might be a little bit unfair. And like I said, I won't, this is only based on my experience, but I've seen it repeated a number of times. The, in my experience, it seems to me like there are a lot of people who think they're an ally simply because they're not particularly opposed to the idea of women or people of color um, being involved in technology. Hmm. And that seems to me to be way too, uh, you know, too low of a bar. Mm-hmm. What's a, what is this thing you wrote down? Oh, I'm sorry. That's, that's the name of, uh, she wrote a great article. Um, I, I wrote down it phonetically so I could say her name, but she wrote the article about Facebook's, um, Black Lives Matter. Uh, this is a great segue into, um, social activism theater mm. is related to the, to the ally panel type stuff where people want credit for doing things that's actually pretty, a pretty small investment on their part. And um, she wrote a book, she wrote a, an article on Medium that was published this week about the uh, Black Lives Matter mural that was um, put up at Facebook. Mm-hmm. And her perspective on this was uh, a lot of people are very quick to give credit for fairly small um, gestures like this. In fact, the, the whole thing that kicked off our conversation about doing this podcast was uh, Google making a statement about um, was it the shooting? Was it the shooting in Minnesota? I've lost. I mean, there's so many shootings anymore. I can't remember. But they made a right. made a statement basically where they said we don't think that police, you know, should shoot people. Right. And you know, my reaction to that was, well, I've also made a public statement. <laughs> right. And people, you know, everyone should make a public statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is we should be expecting this, not praising organizations uh, for doing this. And so one of the things that Facebook did in the past week was they evidently put up a mural that said Black, Black Lives Matter. And um, the author's perspective on this was, okay, that's great. But, <laughs> and, and this was actually before the Facebook diversity numbers came out. So now her oh, wow. story is even more, uh, even, even, you know, more significant. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that people don't realize, people who look like me don't realize this, is that um, so there's an organization called the Southern Poverty Law Center, and um, it, it's an organization that uh, if you don't follow it, I recommend following it. They do great work on social justice. They publish uh, great information. And um, one of their, their poster child for hate speech in America is this website called Stormfront. And Stormfront is a white supremacist website. It's one of the most well-known white supremacist websites. And um, the Southern Poverty Law Center is always talking about them. And they're saying, you know, all all of these white supremacists had a presence on this website. You know, they're extremely dangerous. And they're right. Um, About six months ago, I got curious and I said, okay, how much activity is there? They call it the biggest, the largest white supremacist website on the internet is what they call it. So I took a look and I compared the volume of hate speech on that platform to some other websites um, that are better known. And I compared it to Facebook. I compared it to Reddit. Wait, 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 wait. How did you compare so, that to Facebook? Like, like a magic computer thing? That, a magic computer thing. I actually, ironically, I used Google. And so what I did, I'll tell you what I did. There are certain words that are uh, almost exclusively used in the context of hate speech. And so if you're African-American, there are certain words that are almost certainly an indication of uh, uh, of hate speech. Same thing with people in the LGBT community. Um, for women, there are certain words that have no use other than um, right, an attack, right? right? Mm-hmm. So what I did is I used Google to search those websites for these certain words. And I did this for, uh, for African-Americans, for uh, LGBT, 
and for women. And I compared them. And it turned out that, and so, and, and the sites that I checked, the sites that I looked at were Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Reddit. And it turns out that not only are each of those websites worse than Stormfront, they're hundreds of times worse than Stormfront. So uh, now the, the frequency of the use of these terms is lower. Um, Stormfront is almost exclusively a uh, anti-Semitic, white supremacist, neo-Nazi website. Most of what they talk about is uh, attacks on Jewish people. Um, and the I think 60% of the content on Stormfront is actually hate speech. And it, on Facebook or YouTube or Reddit or Twitter, uh, the percentage of hate speech is much lower. But the volume is much, much higher. Wow. And so that means that the, uh, you know, the white supremacists, the misogynists, the racists, uh, it may be the case that the biggest concentration of them uh, is on Stormfront. But in terms of activity, uh, it's all over Facebook, all over Twitter, all over YouTube, and uh, all over Reddit. And, and, and each of them kind of have a specialty. Reddit is rampant with misogyny. There's, there's a, a tremendous misogynistic activity um, on Reddit. It's, it's really bad. And one of the reasons that this happens is that the people, again, this is a diversity problem. The people working at these companies are not the target of this hate speech. And so it's, they, it's very easy for someone who looks like me to say, oh, uh, someone had a nasty comment. Oh, uh, just ignore it hmm. or, right. Right. Or just right. block that person. Right. Or just go somewhere else or, you know, things like this. And they don't understand that people are, uh, for a lot of people, uh, this is a constant bombardment. They're constantly being attacked mm -hmm. and it's gotten so bad now that, it's even come to LinkedIn. What? Which, LinkedIn? Yeah, which, which is a professional network. Jeez. And I've been complaining to LinkedIn about this for probably two years now. And I've, I've told them, because I, I follow a lot of um, a lot of people, a lot of advocates for social justice and diversity and inclusion um, on LinkedIn. And invariably, when someone posts, publishes an article, um, about on the topic of diversity and inclusion. And it can be a very simple, very elementary one. It can be a very elementary one. Uh, invariably, they will uh, suffer from harassment and hmm. nasty harassment. And so for years, I complained to LinkedIn. I said, look, you guys, you cannot provide a platform for people to publish and allow them to be subjected to abuse like this. Hmm. You have to do something about this. So um, about six months ago, uh, someone responded to me and said, hey, we've done something about it. We've added a button where you can report a comment. And I knew it was going to happen. Uh, this is like giving someone, it's kind of like the buttons at the crosswalk where, you know, they give you this button on the crosswalk <laughs> right, to make you feel like you're in control, feel, oh make you feel God. like you're doing something. But I said, oh, thank you very much. I'll, I'll give that a try. And I knew it was going to happen. So I went through, I, I, I went to town. I went and said, okay, I'm going to report this. I'm going to report that. And of course, nothing happens. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, these companies are in a position where uh, they have to make decisions about, you know, are they going to, the, the problem is, is that moderating their content and discouraging certain types of, of speech, even when it's harmful speech, mm -hmm. Um, is in opposition to their goals of growing their customer base. Right, right. So tell me about what you wrote down here. White sounding name is worth eight years yeah. of experience. What so is this that? is so, this is so. So then the question is, okay. So why aren't organizations more diverse? Why, like, what's the problem? And there's no single reason for it. Uh, there are maybe dozens of reasons, and they all combine to create this problem. And one of, one of the problems has to do with implicit bias. So one of the real hard things about talk, talking with white people about, about this problem is as soon as you 
start talking to someone about, hey, you know, this organization is pretty white. The, they're, 90 times out of 100, they're going to say, you know, I, I don't see color. Mm-hmm. I just want to hire the best people. I'm not a racist. They're going to get very defensive and they're going to they're going to feel that you're accusing them of being a racist. And the word racist and the word racism has become such an emotionally charged word that people consider it white people consider that word to be a racial slur. Mm-hmm. And it, that's that's how that's how bad it is. And so so anyway, but but, but the reality is in, in most cases when people are building their organizations it's usually not overt racism. People usually aren't saying, we're going to hire white people because white people, we believe they're better. What's actually happening is that there are cognitive processes that are uh, that we are unaware of that are driving our decision-making process. We, we, as, we as humans really don't understand how we make decisions. We think we do, but we really don't. And so there are these, uh, there are these great tests. They're online. I think everyone should take it, even though it's very depressing called the Implicit Association Test, or I-8. <laughs> Have you taken this? No. Okay. Well, it'll, you know, it'll probably ruin your day when you do. Um, the way these tests work is they show you pictures of white people and black people, and then they show you different words, and they measure your reaction time. Oh, and, wow. Oh, and that's harsh, yo. Oh, it's, man. It's, harsh. It's, it's, not, it's not nice. And... Uh, it is harsh. And the, the reality is, is all of us make these implicit associations based on our experiences and what we see and like what we see in media. So, um, if I'm watching, you know, four hours of law and order every night and every time I see a white person, they're a cop. And every time I see a black person, right. right, They're a gangbanger that does something to my brain and I can't help it. Right. And we're all seeing that. And you know, when, uh, when, when we see a white person on the news and they're a criminal, uh, they're going to use their favorite Facebook photo for them. Hmm. And when we see a black person accused of the same crime, we're going to see a mugshot. And right. it's, got, it's gotten so bad that we'll see uh, threatening, scary-looking pictures of black people who are victims, which is insane. They're the victim in these cases, and they'll show you a mugshot or something like that, rather, and they'll show you like a graduation picture of the officer who shot that person. Right. And, and so the brain can't help but make these associations. So one of the companies I'm, I'm working right now, I'm, I'm the chief technology officer for a company called Blendor. And so what Blendor does is it tries to address that part of the problem. This is, this is called the top of the funnel, meaning um, trying to uh, uh, eliminate implicit bias having to do with names or hmm. race or gender. And so there have been all these studies that indicate that if you take the same resume and you change nothing on the resume except for the name mm-hmm. and you change it from a uh, what appears to be a, a so-called ethnic name or an African-American name mm-hmm. and you change it to a white-sounding name, people will evaluate that resume differently and they will treat the white-sounding resume. Remember, it's, it's the same resume. Mm-hmm. The exact same. The only thing you've changed is the name, and they give it to different people. Yeah. And consistently, they will rate the white-sounding named resume as being more competent mm-hmm. and more hireable. And the boost that that resume gets is equivalent to about eight years of, addition, of additional experience. Wow. Well, that that goes across lots of different occupations. And uh, yes. what I'm really interested in talking to you about is uh, your particular industry. So tell us about uh, a, a story about how seed money is raised. Sure. So this is another part of it, which is that, so I've just spent the last two years doing uh, um, fundraising for very small companies. And the very early stage um, investments, in this is like when it's like two or three people in a room, um, the, the very early uh, money that goes into these companies is called seed funding. And I'll tell you the success stories. I'm, I'm going I'm to tell you a story. And this is, this is the story that I've heard 
the most, the successful funding story um, of the ones. Now, there, there are, I'm sure there are others that I'm unaware of, but, but the ones that I'm aware of, the, ones that, the people that I know who have successfully raised seed money, the story goes like this. I say, so-and-so, how did you raise money for your company? And they say, well, I called up so-and-so who I either went to school with or I worked with at a previous company or they invested in a previous company. And I said, hey, I'm starting a company. You want to get coffee? And we got coffee and they said, how much do you need? And I said, don't you want to hear my idea? And they said, no, not really. (laughs) And it sounds ridiculous, but I have heard this story again and again and again. And I've gotten to the point now where when I bump into someone new and I haven't heard how they raised their money, I tell them that. And I say, now, how did you raise your money? And what they, what I haven't had someone tell me differently yet. What they invariably tell me is, yep, that's pretty much it. That's pretty much what happened with us. They'll say, yeah, our CEO, uh, you know, used to work with him, or they shared a dorm together, or or whatever. And um, you know, this is a this is a real problem because what it's doing is is that for, first of all, again, it. It goes against this this fable, this narrative of Silicon Valley as a meritocracy, because clearly there's nothing meritocratic about sharing the same dorm with some guy who happens to write checks for five hundred thousand dollars, for example, right? But it does make sense if you understand how people make decisions. People make decisions. Uh, you, you know, when I first got to Silicon Valley, I thought that the way that people invested in companies was they had a room full of financial geniuses who sat down with spreadsheets and did all this planning and figured out, yes, you know, you're going to break even on, you know, year, the, the third quarter of your fourth year in business and you're going to have this many customers and blah, blah, blah. And that's not the way that it works at all. Hmm. And the way that it actually works is that investors are basically um, spreading out their bets because nobody can predict who's going to be successful. There's too many things that can go wrong. And so the way it actually works is people are placing a lot of bets. If, if it actually did work the way that I just said, which is people are sitting down and making predictions, then the way investing would actually work is a VC firm would write one big check every year and that's it. Mm-hmm. What they actually do is make a whole bunch of investments because they have no way of knowing which of those is actually going to pay off. Right. So as a result, uh, the you know the decisions that they're making are heavily influenced by uh, things that are are not rational, but instead <laughs> are emotional, right? And that's how we all make decisions. Actually, we we make up a narrative about why we decided a certain way, but in actuality, uh, the decision has already subconsciously been made, and it's heavily influenced by things like what the person looks like, who they remind us of, hmm. um, you know, do we like them. Right. right? Are they wearing a suit? Are they tall? You know, are they attractive? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all these things that have nothing to do with the, with, uh, it's not predict- predictive of success, um, mm-hmm. at all. What is this 12 black women to raise one? Yeah. So as a result in the history of Silicon Valley, uh, there have been 12, a total of 12 African-American women who have raised $1 million in venture capital money. And uh, and I've personally met several of them. I mean, this is like, a, you know, it's a small, the, the DNI diversity and inclusion community is pretty small. And uh, I, the number of white men who have, that, that's not a lot of money, a million dollars, I know sounds like a lot of money, but that's not a lot of money to raise when it comes to starting a company. Right. And the number of white men or Asian men who have raised that is unknowable. It's, it's you know, th- there have been 12 white men this week who have raised a million dollars in venture capital. I mean, I can say that like without a, without a question. I, I know that to be the case. There are hundreds, I'm gonna repeat this, there are hundreds of venture capital companies in the country, several hundred. And between them, all of them, they have uh, invested a million dollars or more in exactly 12 companies that are headed by African-American um, female founders. Wow. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's astonishing. It's, um, and, and this is, 
So, and part of the reason that happens is again, you you know, you look at who makes up these uh, the venture capital companies, and it's predominantly um, predominantly white men, and uh, that that's that's a big part of, of what's going on there. Let's let's talk about Slack for a second because Slack's another good yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. So Slack's actually so they're they're one of the leaders in terms of diversity and inclusion in Silicon Valley. I mean, they're they're they've done a better job than most in terms of um, they haven't done a great job, but they've done better than most in terms of um, who they've who they've been hiring. And um, but even then, to give you another idea of how how your team is. Uh, who makes up your team? Um, my, the, my, the CEO of Blendor, the company I'm working with right now, mentioned to me the other day, I, I had no idea this was the case, but you know, uh, so Slack, Slack's a chat application, by the way. So it's like Facebook Messenger mm-hmm. or Skype or something, and you can, you can communicate with people. It's like email, but it's a chat program. And it has, like many chat programs, it has uh, emojis. And until... I don't know when. When was it that we finally didn't have yellow emojis for everything? It was about a year ago, maybe two years ago. I think it's about a year ago. <laughs> about a year ago <laughs> I noticed iPhone. They finally said, "Hey, not everyone is yellow, right? We're going to have different colors." Right. So, um, on Slack, until about a couple months ago, um, Stephanie, who's African American, every time she wanted to do a thumbs up, she had to go in and change the color from the default to match her skin tone. And she had to do that every damn time. It, it wasn't sticky. And uh, again, that's the type of thing where if you are a uh, if you're a white guy, you're probably you personally didn't need to change that thing, right? And so you didn't realize how annoying that is. And it's actually a form of a, it's a microaggression, really, right? It's, you're othering this person. You're othering your user. You're supposed to be building software for this person and it turns out that the person you're building it for, you're actually reminding them every time they use your product that you weren't thinking about them. Mm-hmm. And that's that's bad business actually. And so the way that it got changed was that Slack hired a woman named Erica Joy Baker who also was responsible in great part for getting these diversity numbers published and she goes, hey, we need to change this. This is this is ridiculous, and it's the type of thing where it's not a huge change. It's just that if you're a white guy, you don't understand why that's important. Mm-hmm. And the you know the, what people don't realize: white white guys have this feeling that like 95 percent of the U.S. are white guys. That's just how white guys feel. <laughs> and what you know what we don't realize this is this is true. And what we don't, what they don't realize is it's only about 32% of the country are white guys. And so when you're building software for people, you're building software for the 68% of the country. Um, and then, and then if you go to the world, it's like a much larger number are not white guys, mm-hmm. right? It's like a much, much, much larger number. But even if you're building software only for people in the U S mm-hmm. um, the majority of the people using your product are not like you if you're a white guy. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, and you see this again and again and again. And the a great counterexample of this was there was a video game that uh, it's one of these like uh, kind of virtual reality video games where you play this avatar, and initially everyone got the same avatar. You got the same character. The character you got was a bald white guy, mm-hmm. and the, this game was called Rust. And the the developer decided to change it. And you know, in a lot of games, you get to kind of choose your character. You get to say, "I'm gonna, have, I want him to have brown hair and you know, blue eyes, and have this kind of a haircut." And he decided that he was going to randomize it and not let you change it. And so, which, by the way, that's effectively the experience of most women, most people that are not white males. That's been their experience in playing video games. Um, for most of time, which right. is usually right. right. If, you're, if you're playing Donkey Kong, you're playing a white guy with a mustache. You're playing Mario, right? right? Mm-hmm. And when you're playing Pac-Man, it's Pac-Man, right? They had to release a whole right. <laughs> Pac- yeah, lady, yeah. So, so the de- the default um, typically has been has been you know the white guy. So they they released it like this, and people, especially white 
well, exclusively white guys. White guys flipped out and they were pissed and they said, I'm not playing this game. This is an outrage that (laughs) I'm a black woman and not a white man. How can you do this to us? It's exactly what the technology industry has been doing to everyone else for decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it doesn't feel so good, you know, when the shoe's on the other foot. But there aren't a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. for, uh, uh, you know, for guys like me to experience that feeling. The, the there's this principle. Um, there's this principle called nothing about me without me. Mm-hmm. And the the reality is is that the tech industry has been making decisions basically for our users and our customers for decades without including them, without asking their opinion. And, and this, this, this um, manifested itself in kind of an interesting way. I don't know if you followed, have you seen the, the controversy with George Takei recently with, with Star Trek? So Yeah, tell me. So I'll tell you all about it. So uh, in the next Star Trek movie that's coming out. Oh, he's going to be gay. The, the new two will be gay. They, right. they, decided, they decided to pay tribute to George mm-hmm. by making Sulu gay. Right. And unfortunately, what they forgot to do, evidently, was ask George <laughs> how he felt about this. And so they oh, – this, this is a perfect example of nothing about me without me. Now, I, I haven't read all of George's thinking about why he doesn't consider it a tribute, but I suspect it has a lot to do with the fact that he's like, look, just because I'm gay, he spent his entire career mm-hmm. playing straight characters. Right. And George Takei certainly wouldn't want gay actors to have to play gay characters. That doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. That would be unfair to, to gay actors. And Simon Pegg, who's, an, who's one of the actors uh, in the Star Trek movie, I basically told George to shut up and you know accept this, accept that they're honoring him basically. And it's mm-hmm. just the, to me, it's the craziest thing because you know you don't get to tell someone else you know, how they should feel honored, right? And right. It's, it's, a, it's a classic example of disregarding um, someone else's story and someone else's feelings. Right. And uh, uh, so anyway, and this, this is really, really similar to, I mean, you know, all of our industries do it. Tech, tech it's particularly pronounced in tech because the numbers are uh, so pronounced. Uh, another really stark example of this is Twitter, where about the, the numbers have changed over the years, but at one point, 25% of Twitter's users were African-American, and about 12% of the country is African-American. So, so blacks, hmm. Twitter was one of the few places where African-Americans were, were actually overrepresented. In spite of that, 1% of Twitter's uh, engineering organization was black. Wow. And that's a big problem. Um, the, there was recently, uh, you know, Jack Dorsey, so Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, and he recently was seen on stage at some sort of event talking about diversity and inclusion, and he was wearing a Stay Woke uh, t-shirt. Oh, no, he didn't. Yeah. No, yeah, so, he did not. Yeah, oh, so for those, no. for those people who don't know what woke means, woke is a term, it's it's <sighs> Uh, how, how would you – is that – do you think – is it fair to say that's mostly Afri- – is it people of color in general? Is it more African-American? I, I feel like it's more African-American, right? Well, for a, for a, for a, for a company that doesn't necessarily um, value Twitter is not <laughs> hiring Twitter is color. not woke by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and, the and even if you are, that's not a – that's not a title that you bestow upon yourself. No. Um, so it was, uh, no, if, t- if Twitter hired, uh, you know, 25, you know, percent yeah. people of color, then of course you can say, yo, yep. you know, stay woke. No, like, yeah, they Twitter. Are not, yeah. They're yeah. not walking the walk right now. <laughs> and so, um, it was, uh, uh, you know, it, I definitely, it, it struck me as, is very odd. And I, I find it hard to believe they let him get on stage with that t-shirt on. Um, I crazy. know that it was it was a well intended gesture on his part. No, no um, one wanted to piss him off, man. He was like, yeah. I, you know, what do you think of this shirt? You, you think yeah. you think I should well, wear this? Oh, sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever you want. Yeah. 
absolutely correct. <laughs> That's a big part of the problem is that, uh, you know, people are not, you know, likely he's the boss and they're not likely right. to, uh, you know, hold him accountable for things like that. Can you imagine that board meeting? Like, you know, sir, we, we, we think that you should really try to hire about, I don't know, 22% more people of color. Yeah. Would it, oh it my would, God, that would be. They, they can't even move it from 1% to 2%. Right. And, and, and part of the reason, part of the reason, so, so I said there was like 20 different reasons why this is happening. Part of the reason is the hiring. But another part of the problem is what's called the leaky pipeline. Mm-hmm. The leaky pipeline is that really probably a bigger part of the problem is not the hiring people in the first place. It's the retaining the people after you've hired them. And this is where the inclusion part comes in mm-hmm. when we talk about diversity and inclusion. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of these organizations, they are maybe hiring a few people who don't look like the other people that are already there. And once they start, they're like, this is really unpleasant. Right. This is a really unpleasant work environment for me. Why in the hell would I want to continue working here? I don't feel supported. Um, I feel disregarded, um, and uh, I don't feel included, and so that's why the inclusion part is uh, uh, is an important ingredient of diversity and inclusion. It's not simply enough. You, you can't have a diverse workforce, and the people of color and the women don't feel included. Right. That's unsustainable, and that's actually the state, the organizations that are. Uh, doing a little bit of a better job of hiring people often aren't doing a better job of making them feel included. So that that's the second part of the equation. Wow. Well, I think we're just about out of time here, Dan, but uh, do you want to wrap this up with a, a, a last can, word? Or? Yeah. Okay, oh, okay. okay. What was that? Was that? I didn't hear the... Oh, did you... Is, no, there anything, is, there, is there anything else here that you'd like to I, touch on? I think, you know, one, one thing I get is I, I get questions from sometimes. I, I had a meeting a couple months ago with someone who's white, and they said, look, I really want to do something. But, I mean, this is kind of a, um, this person said to me, I really want to do something, but I don't know any black people. And, wow. <laughs> right? and this is a this is that's, a that's real. That's real. Yeah. So, you know, more power to this person for being willing to ask for help. And, and we were introduced by a mutual friend who said, well, you know, this is something that Dan knows about. And the, uh, you know, I think as a white person, if you want to learn more about this, th- there's a couple, a couple simple things to do. The most important thing you can do is, is listen and believe. Because uh, what I see a lot of white people doing is uh, denying what they hear from women and people of color and not believing it because, and it's not because they're bad people. It's because they can't believe it because they've never witnessed it or experienced it. It's, it really is hard to believe that, uh, you know, one of my real formative moments for me was I had lunch with a friend of mine who's black and four other, um, of his, uh, of his friends, and so there were six of us, and we had lunch. And when they brought the check, the, the menu had said, for parties of eight or more, we're, we're going to include a tip. And the check came, and they had included the tip. And there were six of us. Hmm. And I sat there, and I'm like, what the hell just happened? This was, to me, I was like, I was so offended because I'm like, you know, there's a, there's a negative stereotype about African Americans yeah. that they don't tip well, sure, right? Yeah. This is a negative stereotype. And I knew immediately what had happened. I mean, it was obvious to me. Because in my entire life, this had never happened to me before. And then all of a sudden, I'm having lunch with five black people and it happens. So it was just obvious. Right. And, but I had never witnessed it. But this is something that um, people of color and women, these, these types of indignities uh, are happening frequently. It's just that very often white people are not around to witness it. So the first thing I would say is to listen and believe. The second thing I would say is you have to go to places if you want to learn more um, about the experiences of other other people, you have to go to where they are, and then you have to take a seat and 
listen and not try to, you know, one of the problems with people like me is that we're used to being heard Hmm. and, uh, we're used to being the loudest voice in the room and it is, uh, it takes effort actually to, uh, sit down and shut up and nod and listen and learn Hmm. instead of, you know, putting in, uh, you know, putting in your two steps. So, you know, I think one last thing I'll leave you with is there, there's a, so, you know, you've heard of mansplaining. Oh yeah. Right. So mansplaining is when a man will tell you something like, for instance, if I told you about some magic trick, about how to do some magic trick, I know, I know 1% as much about magic as you do, but I'm sure you've had magicians, um, other magicians explain things to you or even people, even lay people explain things to you. Mm-hmm. And they think that because they're male, they know more than you do. And this happens a lot in technology. Um, there's also white splaining. Um, mm-hmm. Simon Pegg straight splained to uh, George <laughs> Takei. Straight splaining, right? And straight, because what yeah. is straight splaining? He was he's a that. straight guy. He's a straight guy explaining to George Takei about why he should be honored that they're making Sulu gay, right? Whoa. Simon Pegg, he's an actor in the new Star Trek movie. Straight splaining. Yeah, and he straight splained to him. And wow. uh, so anyway. So, you know, don't white-splain, um, which is the – that is the – people don't know they're doing it, but that's the impulse that most white people – they're white people are used to being the authority on everything. They think they're experts on everything, a- including what it's like to be black or Latino or Latina or um, Pacific Islander or Native American um, or whatever. And uh, I think that, you know, generally the best advice I can give to white people is to sit down and shut up and, uh, you know, try to learn something. Wow. Very few, I think very few people will take that advice, unfortunately, but that's, that's where, you know, that's where we're at and that's what we have to, uh, I I think that's what it's going to take, um, you know, for us to make any progress. Have you seen progress in your circles by white people changing? Yes. Yes, I have. And, um, it is, uh, I've seen that on the individual level. One of the things that I try to do, so one of the things that we didn't get into is that I, uh, have for years and years and years on Facebook and on social media, I, you know, did the stuff that most people do, which is I posted, you know, cat videos, and, <laughs> you know, what I was having for lunch and about, uh, maybe four, three, four years ago, I started, um, confronting racists, um, on Facebook and, the reason I did that is that pe- people do what's normal. People engage in normative behavior. People do what is normal. That is what people do. And so currently it is normal to not confront crazy racists and crazy white supremacists for a couple reasons. One is people don't like uh, conflict. Another one is those people are crazy. You don't know what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And That's right. I think that as a result of that, and it's easy for me to do, it's easy for me to ignore racists because, you know, I, I, I don't have to, I have to do with it much less than uh, someone who's African-American or Muslim. And, uh, but as a result, these racists have free reign um, over social media because they're unconfronted. And to the extent that people normalize confronting racists, that becomes the new normal. And to the extent that people wow. uh, are uh, giving other white people language for uh, implicit bias, for example, so that people can, people can, uh, can understand that when you say, hey, you know, we've hired 10 white guys in a row, that you're not – they don't have to say – they don't have to respond to that with, oh, are you calling me a racist? They – Right, right. You know, there's – so it's really about establishing um, new norms. The other thing is, the other reason that I choose to, there's two more reasons that I've personally chosen to speak out about this. One of them is, so I, one of the dangers of being a white person working in this space is that you run the risk of shouting down um, black voices, uh, Latino voices, uh and I, I try as much as possible to support and amplify those voices rather than um, speak over them. But the reality is, 
is that there are lots of people out there for whom it ain't true until a white guy says it's true. Amen, Daniel Malmer. That's right. So that's that's the reasons that I that I choose to speak out is that I I've had to call the Daniel Malmer on Facebook many times to talk to my white friends, my white racist friends about stuff. Yeah, many times to pull up the myth, Daniel Malmer. That's yeah, that's real. I'd like to thank the first guest for the Dark Eye Podcast, Daniel Malmer. Thank you so much for being here. Today's theme music was composed by David Sinmulki and engineered by Dan Weinar. Today's Dark Eye Podcast was engineered by Keith Anker. And I am your host and producer, Marites Zerbano. Thanks for listening and listen to our next podcast. Thanks.